This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe and this week we continue to celebrate Black History Month with a journey both through time and the streets of London. We'll look into the lives of a president, a doctor, a nurse, two stars of stage and screen and a footballer who are all commemorated with English Heritage Blue plaques at their former homes in the capital. Joining me to talk about these celebrated figures from England's black history are curatorial director Anna Evis and historian Steve Martin, a member of the Blue Plaques Racial Diversity Working Group. Welcome to you both. Hello, Charles. It's nice to be back. Hi, Charles. Good to be here. So, Steve, let's start with you. We'll start chronologically as well with our first historical figure. She was born in Jamaica and later became a nurse in the Crimean War. But when people think of that conflict, Florence Nightingale's name often springs to mind. Can you tell us a bit more about Mary Seacole? Yeah, she's a fascinating person. I mean, here she is. She's born in 1805 in Kingston, Jamaica. Uh, We know that her father was a Scottish officer in the British Army. Her mother, who was of a mixed background, we believe, ran a boarding house in Kingston, Jamaica. So she's someone from um, a comparatively comfortable background, given the time, two years before the abolition of enslavement. And she's someone who's going to develop very strong uh, sympathies and sentiments towards both Britain as an idea and the British army in particular. So just remind us of dates in history, the abolition of slavery was when exactly? The first Abolition Act was 1807, two years after Mary's birth, and the second, more towards an Emancipation Act, was 1833-34. So she was born into a time of change then, really? Yes. Albeit very gradual. Very little, which is uh, actually revealed in her accounts of her, in her autobiography. But yes, that was the period she was born into. Okay, so her autobiography is quite an important document, I suppose, when it comes to learning more about her. If we fast forward through her early years and then towards her time in the Crimean War, can you tell us how old she was at the time and what year this was? When she gets to the Crimea or visits the Crimea, she would have been approaching 50. Before that, you know, she had been working as the Jamaican term is a doctoress, basically a woman who has healing skills, who knows how to apply poultices, work with herbs, and is really a vector of that African holistic healing tradition, as well as being a business person. She was always a business person throughout her life, and she was no stranger to Britain either. She had visited this country in 1821, 16 years old, and that's the first time she had visited her. But of course, 1854, we see her again applying to the War Office and the Crimean Fund to go out to um, look after her boys, as she called the soldiers. Right. So she did feel an affinity for Britain. A huge affinity. And to the modern eye and air, it can appear awkward if we you know, forget where she was, who she was, where she was coming from. She was always conscious of her appearance. She described herself once as a motherly yellow woman, and she was also very proud of her Scotch blood. Yet at the same time, she was, in a couple of statements, equally proud of her African ancestry. So her connection to the British Army, again, came through her father and the familiarity with soldiers in um, Upshot Camp in uh, Kingston. 
Tell us a bit more about the motivation for why she wanted to go and help in the Crimea. I think why I personally find Mary Seacole so interesting is that she's a bit of a mystery. There are the obvious reasons of her visiting the Crimea in order to look after her boys who knew her as Mother Seacole, this fondness for soldiers she had from her own father. But it's often forgotten that she was also a businesswoman. She went over there in partnership with a Mr. Day to set up um, a British hotel, as she called it. Again, in her mother's tradition of being a boarding house owner, it was a hotel, as well as a place where tinned goods were sold. But her practice of medicine, or her style of practicing medicine, had taken her all over the Americas before she had arrived in Britain. So this was just something she did, as well as business. What were her exploits in the Crimean War? Oh, many. She was known for running round on the battlefield wearing these really vivid Caribbean colours and a straw hat with a yellow ribbon round it as the ultimate target. She declared, she announced that she would be the first woman to enter Sebastopol after that besieged city fell, and uh, true enough, she was. But her main exploit was that she was the face of human care that the ordinary soldier or navvy in those campaigns would have been familiar with, for whom Florence Nightingale, although a known entity, was a remote one, some day's journey from the front line, where they could always see or be tended to by uh, Mother Seacole. What did she do after the war then? After the war, she did declare bankruptcy. We know that there was this huge four-day pageant, 40,000 people attending in her honour at Royal Surrey Gardens in uh, July 1857, and an amount of money was put together for her. We know she wanted to go off to help to look after her sons, the soldiers who were engaged in the um, Indian uprising, or mutiny as it's popularly known, in 1857. She didn't get out there. We know that she also went to Jamaica. She spent a number of years in Jamaica, where with the funds that she had gained from various organizations which were supporting her, as well as the profits that she was making from her autobiography, she was able to buy property and extend some of her mother's original land and um, property out in Jamaica. So what year did she come to London? 1854 is when she arrived in London to um, head off to the Crimea. As we talk about London, whereabouts would her blue plaque be? Well, the blue plaque is, um, it could have been in many places, but the one that was chosen was at uh, number 14 Soho Square, which is the um, address that she moved to after her return from the Crimea. And um, she was uh, running short of money, and she'd hitherto been living in Covent Garden. But it could equally have been at uh, Cambridge Gardens in Paddington, which is where she died. How long did she live? She dies in uh, 1881, so she had a good innings, and on her death she left 2,500 in her will, which was a sizable amount at that time. And I think that a lot of research has yet to be undertaken as to the origins of that sum of money, given that she was living as a humble boarder at number two Cambridge Gardens. Not to cast aspersions, but who knows? Maybe she had a windfall from something. I don't know. This is the magic of Mary Seacole. 
the mystery just deepens the further you go into her life. She's absolutely fascinating. That's obviously our nurse covered. We're now going to move on to a doctor. We're talking about Dr Harold Moody, and it was during the reign of Queen Victoria when he was born. Because he was a doctor like Mary Seacole, they share that in common, this medical aspect, and they also share the fact that they are from Jamaica. But when was Dr Harold Moody born? He was born in 1882. He was from a middle-class background. His father was a pharmacist. He was fairly well educated and um, he succeeded in his ambition to travel to London to study medicine like a surprising number of Caribbean students interested in medicine. The towns to study in were either Edinburgh or London. And interestingly, he um, comes into the world in the year after Mary Seacole has left. Yes. So what brought him to London apart from the medicine? Was that felt to be the best option in terms of medical schools for him? This is interesting. You find that a surprising number of men, overwhelmingly, from the Caribbean who are studying London at this time, also became politically active. And this is in the strong tradition of people from the Caribbean and Africa. After and during their studies here, they become engaged with addressing issues of race, class and power. And they end up staying here and establishing institutions. And I suspect very strongly that he became or already was one of that number, of that inclination to be politically active. This was the place to speak to power. So in some respects, he was taking advantage of the trappings of the empire. Exactly. And to take advantage of the educational system and to further a career, but also to platform and to campaign for change. This was a very common dynamic, and you see it uh, from the 19th century onwards. Yet he did face difficulties when he got to London, I understand. Can you tell us what sort of problems he experienced? 1904, he arrives. Although financially he has a lot of privileges that a huge number of black people don't, he is still a black man studying medicine at King's Hospital, despite the fact that he was at the top of his class upon qualification in 1910. He is not given a place within the hospital, he's not given a position within the hospital, and it's that act, interestingly an act which was reported throughout the African diaspora, especially in the United States. It was reported in uh, the periodical crisis. And because of that rebuttal, he was prompted to open up his own surgery. So that was the way he overcame the prejudice of people, I suppose, saying, I don't want to be treated by a black doctor. But Yes, but that was one way he did it. But, you know, he was of parts and learning. And he overcame it as well, I think, behaviorally. He was always an exemplar of good manners and excellent taste and perfect clipped speech, which annoyed a lot of people. He was a very devout Christian as well. He was a Congregationalist. He became the chair of the London Missionary Society, and he preached at Camberwell Congregationalist Church. So, yes, his faith and his general attitudes and demeanour really helped him to overcome the racism that he would have felt, regardless of his profession turning the other cheek and being tolerant and adopting certain aspects of Britishness in a way. Extremely, and this didn't go down too well with many of uh, the black people resident in Britain at the time. Although, politically, I think he was fairly successful with this approach. 
It caused some controversy because it was seen as um, kowtowing to the status quo by doing things such as holding garden parties, <laughs> the very popular garden parties that he and his fellow black doctor, Cecil Belfield Clark, used to host for the great and the good. Just an extremely polite approach to power, which mm. worked be- probably better then than it would today. Tell us a bit more about Dr. Harold Moody's GP practice, which he set up after facing prejudice from um, the establishment there. Whereabouts yeah, well, was he, that? Well, he had um, a couple of practices. Upon being shunned from King's Hospital, he sets up his first practice in uh, King's Road in Peckham. That's what, 1913, he starts that became very popular GP because the numbers of poor people around him were attracted to his surgery because he would often give them free food, free meals, and other forms of succor to destitute African seamen who turned up at his door. But uh, in 1922, he moved into larger premises, literally across the road, across Queen's Road in Peckham, to number 164, where he set up the larger practice. And it's a very handsome property. It's very easy to imagine how it would have doubled both as a surgery and a place of greeting and socialisation and political organisation. Is that where we see his blue plaque? It is. His property there was a place of refuge and also a GP practice, but did he treat people who were white? As well as black. Oh yes, I mean, oh this is this is. I mean, I was uh, privileged to meet before he passed away <laughs> some years ago. One of his uh, former patients. Uh, the overwhelming majority of his patients were white, and he was known, as I was given to understand, as the black doctor. <laughs> but yes, the overwhelming majority of his patients were white, and I imagine that initially it would have been quite a battle for him to establish and maintain that clientele given the time he was practising. You mentioned his Christianity, um, his tolerance, his sort of Britishness as well. What else was Dr Moody known for? Oh, he's active in so many ways. He was central in the push for integration into the British Army by black men and women, particularly engineering into reality the obtaining of commissions by black men and women. And this was something which was personal for him because one of his daughters and I think two of his sons gained commissions during the Second World War. His daughter Christine finishing her career as a lieutenant colonel and they were amongst the first raft of black people, especially in the army, to um, be commissioned. So he was very involved in that as well as getting the take-up of uh, black nurses in the National Health Service. And I always find it really strange that uh, Moody dies and the League of Coloured Peoples, his organisation, fades out of view just prior to the arrival of the Empire Windrush from Jamaica in um, 1948. Obviously, Dr Moody eventually dies. How old was he and what year was that? Well, he dies in 1947, one year before the arrival of the Empire Windrush with its 492 Jamaican migrants, who, of course, will end up looking for a different form of political leadership than that which had been offered by Moody and the League of Coloured Peoples. Now, as you mentioned, around the same time Dr Harold Moody was starting his medical career in London, earlier in his life, Kwame Nkrumah was born in 1909, in modern-day Ghana, and he went on to become his country's first prime minister 
and president after it became independent. First of all, how was Ghana known when Kwame Nkrumah was born? Nkrumah was born in uh, 1909, and that was still a period when uh, what we now know as Ghana was called the Gold Coast. And the Gold Coast had been um, a British colony since 1821, one of the earliest, or the second earliest British colony on the continent. It was known as a model colony. And that's the sort of society that uh, Nkrumah, coming from a very poor background, grew up in. It offered him the possibility of an education and the possibility, ultimately, to travel to Britain, which is something he did later in life. And he comes to London eventually. How old was yeah. is he around that time and, and when does he come to London? He comes to London in 1945. Remember, he's already spent almost or just over 10 years in the United States studying, steeping himself in politics, particularly communism, socialism of all sorts, and becoming very connected with the Pan-African movement. And, you know, like Harold Moody <laughs> and like a lot of these traveling scholars, he soon becomes swamped with his political work. His political work actually takes over from his studies. He came to study anthropology at the LSE and he ended up trying to study law at the Inns of Court, but that didn't quite work. So he, he comes with scholastic intentions to the London yeah. School of Economics and then to be a lawyer and then ends up becoming a politician in the making. Yes, he was. Yeah, I mean, this, the, the, the small amount of time he spent here, the couple of years he spent here was really the making of him because um, he became elected to WASU, the West African Student Union, as their vice president, became the Pan-African Federation's regional secretary, and he was one of the principal organisers of the 5th Pan-African Congress in Manchester. So he was very, very busy with a lot of things apart from study. Pan-African makes things sound very busy indeed. Can you tell us a bit more about what Pan-Africanism is? In a nutshell, it's the belief and the philosophical and political practice of having the Aisha Day of Africa, the continent of Africa, being for all Africans on the continent and throughout the diaspora, that all people of African origin should have a common interests and that people of African background, we should be unified and um, also of um, economic independence and uh, self-reliance. But fundamentally, the idea of that global connectedness of people of African origin with Africa being the focus and the ultimate place of resort or home. Was there any sort of tone to it that perhaps South Africa and other parts where white settlers had gone should not be there anymore? That was very much at its core. The idea that African territories should be governed by African people. And that extended across the Atlantic as well. It was very prevalent in the Caribbean, obviously the home of Marcus Garvey, who also uh, lived here. It was very much at the centre of uh, black politics in the United States as well. So it was a global idea and it made his ultimate success as they, you know, in taking Ghana to independence all the more extraordinary because this was the first time that this had happened, that you had a black leader of a black country outside of Ethiopia, I should add. It was seen as being a turning point in black political thought and organisation. So we might describe him as right wing? 
a lot of people would <laughs> because he's very very complex whereas you see him popular depictions of him wearing traditional clothing he eschews european attire yet at the same time he is very much against tribalism he stamps out the power of you know local authorities and tribal entities but he is still pushing for the elevation of black culture and black identity across the world and ultimately you know he declares himself president for life in uh, 64 so it, it's sort of a mixed legacy that he has bearing in mind his political leanings and this pan-africanism he did suffer racial prejudice in london i understand he suffered the prejudice that um, the overwhelming majority of post-war settlers including my own parents experience the sort of unifying experience which was the struggle to find somewhere to live on first arrival going from door to door and being refused accommodation famously there's you know the no blacks no dogs no irish posters put in windows and that affected him greatly but he ultimately did find a place to settle in uh, the borough of Camden, Kentish Town, 60 Burley Road, and that's where his blue plaque sits today. He wasn't there for that long, as you mentioned, a couple of years. Why did he leave? He was invited back. There was new political movement being organised, the United Gold Coast Convention, and on their agenda was the fast-forwarding to self-government. They wanted self-government rapidly and they canvassed various parties and people to lead them and it was put to Nkrumah who jumped at it <laughs> but um, knowing that you know it could take him where it wanted to go and also where he wanted what was then the Gold Coast and um, Africa to go. Was he voted in as Ghana's first Prime Minister and then President? Uh, he was but ultimately he did declare himself to be, he had an amendment which he'd fashioned to make Ghana a single party state, hmm. which was his uh, big mistake. And therefore, obviously, he'd be eternal president. Clearly, that led to him being deposed, <laughs> stereotypically, in a coup while he was um, on an, a state visit to China. Regardless of those drawbacks, what were his achievements? It's mostly relating to Pan-Africanism what he stands for as a symbolic leader, as well as the reforms he made to education and healthcare within Ghana, his constant support for the unification of Africa and making sure just top front and centre of all liberation movements was that total removal of European influence. And often forgotten that um, he was one of the founding members of the Organization of African Unity, the OAU. So, yes, he did a huge number of things in his checkered time in power. Yes, he has all sorts of legacies, but symbolically, he, to the global African view, his presence and his uh, work with African liberation and unity movements really set him apart from all of those who followed. Did he stay in the newly named Ghana until his death? Or did that coup no. cause him to... Uh... <laughs> it caused him to flee. <laughs> he ended in living in Guinea. 
And once there, he was gifted with this sinecure title of honorary co-president, which must have been interesting. We know that uh, he died in 71. He was suffering from prostate cancer, which necessitated him uh, going to um, Romania for Mm. surgery. That's where he died in Bucharest in 1971. And how is he remembered in Ghana today? He's memorialized in a number of ways. You know, firstly, his national day. Also, he's known by the title The Redeemer. Pan-Africanists in Ghana and globally still hold him in the highest esteem, but parties or constituencies with stronger tribal and regional allegiances within that country are not so fond of him due to his very heavy-handed attempts to stamp out tribalism. And of course, the fact that he did establish a one-party state didn't gain him a large amount of support at the time. Okay, well, thank you very much, Steve, for bringing those three people into the spotlight with their blue plaques, their time in London and their very interesting lives. We move now into another part of the 20th century and we also bring in Anna, who's our curatorial director, to talk about our next three black historical figures. Anna, we're now shifting our focus away from politics and into the world of performing arts in the 20th century. And our next two blue plaque recipients met each other through their work. We'll start with Paul Robeson. And I understand he was born in the United States in 1898. He was. He was born in Princeton in New Jersey. And he was the son of an escaped slave. His father had escaped from slavery in his teens. And his father, who was a Presbyterian minister, his mother was a school teacher. And Paul Robeson seems to have been one of those rare people who was extraordinarily accomplished intellectually, physically. He seems to have been able to turn his hand to almost anything. As a young man at school, he excelled at sport, particularly football, debating, singing. Academically, he was really very strong. And his original intention was to go off and be a lawyer. So he trained at law school and graduated with a law degree, but wasn't to become a lawyer. Of course, he'll move into the musician sphere. His sporting prowess, though, I presume we're talking about the gridiron, American football. American football, yes. Right, but okay. he, he was very big. <laughs> I mean, he was six foot three, I think, a kind of big giant of a man. And happily, there are lots of bits of film and images of him that listeners can have a look at. But he was a big man in many respects, I think, and was clearly a star on the American football pitch, if that's the right word. He comes to London eventually. And of course, I'm presuming at this point he's pursuing a musical career? Yes, he graduated from law school in 1923. And although he worked briefly as a lawyer, he seems to have stopped pretty quickly, perhaps because of the racism that he encountered. And he began pursuing acting and singing instead. He was financially supported and and encouraged by his wife, Essie. And by the late 20s was a pretty successful Broadway star. And in 1929 was performing in Drury Lane in Showboat. Right. And that show ran for 350 performances. I think it's one of the most financially successful shows that was ever performed there. He, of course, famously sang Old Man River, which is perhaps the song that's most associated with him. He had a fabulous, rich bass voice. This was in 1929, but he and his wife lived in London throughout the 30s and he pursued a very successful stage and screen career whilst in London. And was he brought over to London 
as a result of a casting or... You know, he was already in the show, and the show transferred here, I think. Right. But what's interesting, and certainly having been listening to Steve talking about those three characters who found their way here, and, and he was just talking particularly with those two men, was talking about the way in which London functioned as a kind of political centre. What's very interesting about Paul Robeson, and one of the reasons why it's so important, I think, for us to have a plaque to him, is that, first of all, when he initially in, arrived in... England, of course, he arrived in Southampton, kind of came on the boat from New York. He later said that he instantly felt more comfortable here. Although he did experience some racism while he was in this country, it felt much less than what he had been used to in the States. And when he was performing Showboat in 1929, he was returning from an afternoon matinee one day and he heard male voices singing in the street and they were perfectly in harmony. And, of course, Paul Robeson had grown up singing spirituals and hymns. And he heard this beautiful singing and was surprised to see that the singers were very bedraggled-looking working men. And they were Welsh miners who had been blacklisted following their participation in strikes in Wales and had marched to London to try and campaign for ways in which they could feed their families, you know. Mm. And he fell in with them. He walked with them. One of the participants later said, you know, it was kind of an amazing thing, this huge African-American guy, quite formally dressed, joining in with them. And he walked with them to Trafalgar Square and then he sang to them. (laughs) <laughs> and he sang Old Man River and he sang, I mean, he sang you know, some spirituals and he, he felt a bond with them. And he subsequently paid for them to get the train back to Wales in a carriage which was full of food and clothes. And he contributed to the Miners' Relief Fund. And, and it was the beginning of a relationship with Welsh working people and more broadly, actually, with working class communities in Britain. And it also seems to have been a connection which really did politicise him. He later said that he learned more from the Welsh working class than from anyone else. And I think then one sees, during the 30s and beyond, Paul Robeson taking an increasingly active role in campaigning for justice, for working people, for minorities. But it seems to have really been triggered by that first meeting. I can almost see it on stage in the West End of that encounter being turned into uh, a show. The other thing that's terrifically moving is that in the late 50s, he had actually by this time been denied a passport by the US State Office. The American government became increasingly concerned by his political activity. He visited the Soviet Union in the 1930s. He sent his son to school in the Soviet Union in 1936. He felt a great affinity with it. And he was increasingly campaigning throughout the 40s for civil rights in the, in the US. And in the 50s, he had his passport taken away on the grounds that he was making too much noise about the treatment of black people in the US and advocating too strongly on behalf of colonial peoples of Africa, mm-hmm. interestingly. And you know, and he was called to testify by the House of an American Activities Committee. But in 1956, the first transatlantic telephone cable had been laid. And in 1957, he was unable to travel at this point, so he was having to turn down invitations to go and perform all over the world. And in 1957, a thousand people bought tickets 
for a telephone concert that he did at St Pancras Town Hall. So we kind of think nowadays, don't we, that we're, you know, all of this remote live streaming and so on. <laughs> Paul yeah. Robeson was doing it in 1957. And he also sang to Welsh miners at the Isteadford in 1957. And there is a recording of that. And it's very moving because... The uh, Steadford, you know, the annual festival of song, he used to participate in and, and used to visit regularly and he couldn't go. So they had this event when he was connected by telephone and they spoke to him. He sang to them and they then sang, we'll keep a welcome in the hillside for you, which is, you know, it's all no, not a dry eye in the house. So that gives you a very vivid sense of the connection he felt with the British working class and particularly the Welsh miners. Where's his blue plaque in London, though? His blue plaque is in Hampstead, in a little road called Branch Hill, which overlooks the west part of the heath. And it's where he lived in 1929 to 30. So it was during that time when he was singing in showboat to kind of commemorate the place that he was living at the peak of his fame. Let's move on to Elizabeth Welch, also from uh, the stage. Uh, she has a connection to Paul Robeson as well, because she was an American singer, as he was as well, and they were performing around the same time. When and where was Elizabeth Welch born? Elizabeth Welch was born in 1904 in New York. Her father was a very strict Baptist. She had a little bit of a battle on her hands because, you know, she sang at church and as she got older, she became interested in singing on the stage and that was something that he abhorred. But her mother supported her. By 1923, so just at at the age of about 19, she was singing in reviews in New York. Throughout the late 20s, she took part in lots of cabarets and reviews in America And in the late 20s, she had performed in Paris and had made a bit of a hit there. And when the Depression started, she took the opportunity to kind of capitalise on her connections in Paris and she returned there. And from 1930 to about 1932, she lived in Paris, absolutely loved it and was a great success. So from Paris, eventually Elizabeth comes to London. When does that happen? Elizabeth came to London in 1933 and she performed in an all-black review in Leicester Square, the theatre in Leicester Square, at which she sang what was to become her signature tune, really, Stormy Weather. What's incredible is that she sang that song in 1933 and she sang it again on film in 1979 when Derek Jarman used her to perform it. I have seen the clip on YouTube, actually, yes. Yeah, yeah, to a load of handsome sailors. Anyway, but she that tells you something very important that you need to know about her, which is that she kept performing Yes, um, for about 70 years. How long did she actually spend in London then? Was it a a long period or...? She stayed there for the rest of her life. I mean, initially, she she just stayed because of the work. And in 1934, she had been picked up for a BBC radio show called Soft Lights and Sweet Music, which broadcast all over the country so she began to build up a following across the country not so not just in London which meant that when she toured subsequently you know she was very popular and in 1939 when war broke out she decided to stay here she entertained the troops in 1942 she went in a blacked out plane with John Gielgud and Edith Evans and others to perform for troops in Gibraltar and then after the war she stayed and performed in many reviews and films In terms of her residences, did she live at different places? 
Well, the blue plaque is on the flat that she lived in in the 30s when she first arrived here. It's just off the Brompton Road. It's quite a handsome mansion block. She had a tiny flat in which she was said to live with her maid and a fox terrier. Thereafter, she lived in other parts of Knightsbridge. And in the 90s, she moved to a retirement home for entertainers in Northwood, which is where she died. But I understand she had quite a long life. She died in 2003, so she was almost almost 100. Lastly, of course, we get to Laurie Cunningham, who was a star in his own right as a trailblazing English footballer. Unlike the other blue plaque recipients we've discussed, though, he was born in London as opposed to being a visitor who took up residence. Where is um, Laurie's blue plaque and what period in his life does this recognise? Laurie's blue plaque is in uh, Haringey, Lancaster Road in Stroud Green. It's where he lived with his parents from the age of about 10 to just about until he was 19. This blue plaque obviously is telling us about his burgeoning footballing talent. How did his football career take off? He first played football for the Boys Brigade and he also represented Haringey schools and London schools. I think he was a youth player with Arsenal for a while but that didn't seem to come to anything. The change came when he was spotted by a scout for Leighton Orient, then called just Orient. And in 1974, he made his professional debut for them. That's where he seems really to have blossomed. So his talent was spotted as a footballer, of course, but racism was also noticeable in that period in his life. And it's still a huge problem in football today in some parts of the world. And it was more overt, of course, here in this country in the 1970s and 80s. What would it have been like for Laurie as a high-profile black player at that time coming up and also as he became a professional? By all accounts, he and his fellow black players, and I think there were around 50 black players in all four divisions, you know, at the turn of the 1980s, they had to contend with unbelievable levels of overt racial prejudice from fans and and fellow players. So banana throwing, racist chants were common and usually passed unremarked and unpunished. And I know that players talk about the noise of that kind of abuse being really deafening. And of course, the FA eventually apologised in 2001. You know, Cunningham, who was a player of great flair and also had a long-term white girlfriend, uh, Nikki Brown, did come in for a lot of abuse and his girlfriend talked about when he was living in Birmingham a petrol bomb was pushed through their letterbox and he calmly stamped out the flames but it was something that really dogged him all his professional life. West Bromwich Albion was a key club for him can you tell us why? West Bromwich snapped him up in 1977 March 1977 and and this was a move for him from the second to the first division and here he was part of a team which uniquely for the time included three black regular first-team players, the others being the centre-forward Cyril Regis and the right-back Brendan Batson. They were dubbed the Three Degrees by their ebullient manager, Ron Atkinson, and do seem to have been a kind of magic combination. Here, he was on fire. He scored 30 goals in 144 appearances, including memorable wins over Manchester United and over Valencia in the Wafer Cup, both in December 1978. And it was at that point that he was brought to the attention of Real Madrid. He goes to Real Madrid, as you mentioned. How successful was he there? 
He was a star at Real Madrid. The tragedy really is that because he was such a star and his qualities of grace and balance, he became a target. And that probably was also to do with the racism we mentioned. And it seems to be the case that whilst with Real Madrid, he experienced racism not only from fans, but from his own team members. He kind of became a marked man in the Spanish League. He suffered a lot of injuries. In 1981, he had three bouts of surgery on his left knee, one made necessary by an injury caused by a team meet in training. He had to miss a lot of the season. And at this point, we haven't mentioned, of course, that he was also on the England side. And in 1979, his full international debut was the first time that a black player had appeared in a competitive international. But his injuries sustained whilst he was playing for Real Madrid meant that he had to miss a lot of the England games too. But did he taste success at Real? He did. But what seems to have happened is that subsequently he couldn't quite fulfil his potential. He subsequently was moved around. He had fairly short-term stints with many teams. And I think one has the sense of a really brilliant talent that was actually denied the long and flourishing career that he should have had. How did his career and life end? He was killed in a car crash at the age of 33. He was driving in the outskirts of Madrid and his car crashed into the central reservation and he died at the scene. When was his blue plaque put in place then? Because I understand the unveiling was quite a moving event. It was a wonderful event. It was in 2016. His long-term girlfriend, Nikki Brown, talked about what it was like to come to the house in their teens. And she, you know, she talked about the kind of escapades she and Laurie kind of carried out and, you know, Laurie's mother and the smell of Sunday dinner and all that sort of thing. But Cyril Regis, you know, one of the three degrees was there. And there were very moving speeches from Garth Crooks, representing the Professional Footballers Association, who talked about the way in which Laurie Cunningham was really a model for so many young black footballers that although Cunningham wasn't perhaps quite able to fulfil his own potential, his legacy was that many young black men felt that he had carved a way forward for them so that we've gone from a situation in which it was unusual to have black footballers in such high-profile teams and games to the case that we have now where more than a quarter of professional players in the English league are of black minority ethnic origin. And Ron Atkinson, who has a way with words, said, you know, he could run on snow without leaving footprints. (laughs) And so one has this wonderful image of a player who was able to transcend all kinds of difficulties and with a real gift, a real flair, somebody who was beautiful to watch and for those who saw him play, They have never forgotten it. Well, let's bring Steve back into the conversation. And we've heard the stories of these six distinctive individuals separated by nationality, sex and profession. But that wasn't always the case with the majority of blue plaques honouring white men. What is English Heritage doing to encourage more diversity in the blue plaque scheme? You're the Racial Diversity Working Group member. Yeah, well, as a member of that group, I think it's really interesting and, of course, timely that um, English heritage is um, or has been looking at who exactly we commemorate because on a personal level street furniture and the built environment are central to um, our sense of selves especially nowadays when many younger people live um, disturbingly parochial lives that sense of belonging that sense of being connected 
to where one lives and by extension to other parts of the world is extremely important. And more than anything else, it's very important just to stress the ubiquity of where you'll find these plaques and where you'll find these lives. But um, there's a lot more to do and it's um, all good. Steve, what inspired you to join the Racial Diversity Working Group and how have things progressed since? Well, I was inspired to join because of just the historically low profile of uh, minority and multiple histories throughout the whole of the heritage sector and the need just to raise and uh, boost these profiles. And my love of um, sharing stories prompted me as well. But it was the stark absence of particularly non-white figures, black and Asian men and women, which was just glaringly obvious. There's a wrong which needed to be righted if someone like um, Paul Robeson was absent from the story someone like Harold Moody, then the function of an organisation like the Blue Plaques and uh, English Heritage has to be questioned at some level. Anna, how can people get involved in nominating someone who's no longer with us to have a Blue Plaque at the spots where they would have lived in London? We're really keen to receive suggestions for Blue Plaque nominations. It's very easy to do. If you have a figure in mind, be sure that they meet our basic criteria, which is that they should have done something incredible that's contributed to human welfare or happiness, that they have been dead for at least 20 years, and that they have an association with a London building. If your suggestion meets those three criteria, then please get in touch and you can find out how to do that on the English Heritage website in the blue plaque section. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more black history and blue plaques, you can listen to episode 27 about Bob Marley. Next week, we talk to historian Olivette Atelle and discuss the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade in England. Of course, horrible in terms of morals and ethics, and that came at a human, dire human cost. Thanks for listening. See you next time.